0: Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free.
1: This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're pleased to welcome your host, Colonel John Eidsmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel.
0: Hello, Brian. Good to be with you again today.
1: So I understand we're going to be talking about the Ninth Commandment today, but uh, first of all, you have some thoughts on a very current event, that being the situation in Ukraine.
0: Yes, we've talked about Ukraine quite a bit here, and as you know, I have previously been to Ukraine several times back in nineteen or the 2015. This is right after the Maidan Revolution, and I saw how the people there had taken up bricks off the street to fight against the pro-Russian soldiers. And so the resolve that they have shown in this fight has not surprised me in the least. And what I've said all along is that what probably needs to be done is to, first of all, convince Putin that he has made a mistake here, that this is going to cost him a lot more than he thought it would and more than he thinks it's worth, and make him kind of wish he hadn't done this. But still, you've got a man with a great deal of ego and a lot of face to lose if he simply retreats and backs out and so the next thing you need to do then this is kind of standard negotiating tactic is to give him a way he can shift course without losing face and what I've suggested what seems to be on the table right now is that you've got those eastern provinces Luhansk and Donetsk and in this area you have quite a bit of Russian nationality. People there generally speak Russian. And whether it's a majority or not, there is strong pro-Russian sentiment there. And that's part of the justification that Putin used from the very beginning in coming into Ukraine was that he wanted to secure independence for those oblasts or districts. And... Also, this business about denazifying Ukraine, which is absolutely ridiculous. You have some very conservative sentiments, especially in western Ukraine, but to call it Nazi is nonsense, and the idea that they cooperated with the Nazis is nonsense as well. Yes, some of them did recognize the Germans, and, or welcomed the Germans in 1941, but that was only to liberate them from the communists. Remember that Stalin had forcibly starved somewhere between 3 and 10 million Ukrainians back in the 1920s and 30s. And so there is a hatred of communism there. They recognize their kinship in many ways with Russia, but they have no desire to be part of Russia. But you do have that eastern region. And as a negotiating tactic, I would suggest, first of all, to make an offer that we would agree to internationally supervised elections in Crimea and in Donetsk and Luhansk as to whether or not they wish to remain part of Ukraine or be part of Russia or be independent and agree to abide by those results. If we did this, Putin could then say to his oligarchs and to his people, well, that was our real purpose for going in there in the first place, to secure these regions. We have accomplished our mission. Therefore, we are declaring victory and going home. And it might work, especially after 35 days of a much more intense resistance than seemed like anybody in America except me expected. But there is a bill that is before Congress right now. The House has passed it. I don't believe the Senate has. That would remove the most favored nation trade status of Russia. This was passed by the House by a vote of 424 to 8. And I don't know its status in the Senate right now, but. That would indicate that if it hasn't passed the Senate, it probably will. But there were eight who voted against it, and these were conservative Republicans, and they had a reason for voting against it, a reason that I think is a legitimate reason that needs to be considered. And Sometimes we've got to look at trade-offs here. This bill that would authorize the president to end the most favored trade status of Russia would also authorize the president to remove most favored trade status or impose other sanctions on other nations for human rights violations. And that on service doesn't sound that bad. However, when you consider how the Biden administration might decide to define human rights violations, they could say that abortion is a human right, and therefore deny most favored trade status to any nation that does not legalize abortion. They could decide that homosexual conduct or transgender or same-sex marriage is a constitutional or a basic human right, and therefore deny most favored trade status to any nation that doesn't recognize same-sex marriage and the like. And point of the matter is, we see the deception to which the left is willing to go here in order to try to accomplish its agenda, even exploiting a situation like we have here in Ukraine with the terrible invasion by Russia and conditioning our being willing to help Ukraine, conditioning that on giving the president power to enforce this pro-abortion and pro-gay agenda as far as our foreign policy is concerned. It makes things difficult, and sometimes when you're in Congress, you have to deal with a trade-off like that, but I can understand why some of our conservative friends voted for this legislation, but I can also understand those eight who voted against it, and I can certainly see why they felt obliged to do so. Because a bill like this could lead to some terrible abuses in the part of the president in the area of foreign affairs. Well, I just talked about deceptiveness, and that is what the Ninth Commandment is all about. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And let's take a look at a passage of scripture here that is very important in this regard, Quite a few passages, actually, but I'm going to begin with Acts, Acts chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. And you recall that in chapter 4, we're talking about the early church in Jerusalem and how this early church in Jerusalem had decided to hold all things in common. They would sell their property and they would lay the proceeds from that sale at the feet of the disciples and this would be used to feed those who were in need. And many Christians in Jerusalem at this time were in dire need because many had lost their jobs, many had been disinherited by their families for accepting Christianity. So this was an emergency situation. I would emphasize that it is not a communist system. It is voluntary, voluntary cooperation. It is more like the farm co-ops that we have had and still have sometimes here in America today where farmers form a co-op and instead of each farmer buying his own tractor or his own combine, rather they will have one that they own in common and each one takes turns using it. In other words, it's a voluntary economic way of sharing and it makes sense, but it is definitely not communism. However, we read as we come to Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, after we read all those who laid money at the apostles' feet, but a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? Well, it remained. Was it not thy own? And after it was sold, was it not in thy own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias and his wife were consumed by fire for this sin, but the sin was not refusing to participate in this co-op the sin was lying in this case lying to the holy spirit pretending they had given all when in fact they had not but also lying to the apostles and the christian community as well we see that lying then is considered a very severe offense and we'll see more after the break
1: Back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Making our way through the Ten Commandments still, and this time we are talking about uh, the commandment against bearing false witness. When we look
0: at this command against bearing and false witness, we tend to ask, well, why would people lie? Why do people lie? There was a study that appeared in the National Geographic in June of 2017, trying to look at humanistic answers as to why people lie, it was found that the average person recognizes and remembers telling a lie about once or twice each day. And I suspect there are a lot of other little white lies or deceptions that we don't even remember. So I think that's only a very small portion of the lying that we actually do. And study also said that children learn that they can lie between about age two and about age four. I can't remember back at that age myself. For some reason, up until a certain age, maybe somewhere around there, I don't remember exactly, the possibility that you could say something that wasn't true had never even occurred to me. And then it did occur to me, hey, I can lie. But at the same time, it occurred to me, but that's wrong. But <clears throat> children seem to learn that early in life, between ages two and four, but they're not very good at it. It's pretty easy to catch children at that age in lies. But by the time they're five to seven, they develop some skill at lying. It's found further that if you look to various age groups, people ages 13 to 17 tend to lie. Lie the most. Next to that is the age group of 9 to 12, then after that the age group of 18 to 44, and seems like as we get older, for some reason we are less likely to lie. Maybe we just learn that it doesn't pay, or maybe we develop a conscience over time. As to why people lie, well the study said that when people asked why they've been telling lies, said, well, I told a lie recently to cover up a mistake. In other words, pretend like they hadn't made the mistake, which they have. 16% they had lied to gain an economic advantage over other people. 15% to gain a personal advantage over somebody else. 14% to avoid other people. That's kind of the situation of the office, for example, when the secretary says, you have a call, sir, now, tell them I'm not in right now, or tell him I'm in a meeting. Well, that's a lie, but to avoid other people. 8% say I tell lies to give people a better opinion of me. 5% say they tell lies to help other people. In other words, with a good motive in mind, but whether that's justified is another matter. say they've told told lies to hurt people. 2% simply to avoid being rude. And then there are others, the study said, that are pathological liars, that just get into a pattern of lying and keep that pattern up. National Geographic concluded that lying is culturally programmed. And maybe it is genetic. But doesn't seem to have considered what the scriptures have to say about the matter. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 9 through 10, for example, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord searches the heart, thy reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. In other words, The root cause of lying is the human heart, which is deceitful. And deceitful and wicked above all things, Jeremiah says. We can look to other passages of scripture, like the book of Psalms. Psalm 5, in verse 6. Excuse me while I turn to this. Place mark in it, but it's here we are. Okay, Psalm five and verse six. Thou, speaking of God, thou shalt destroy them that speak falsehood. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. That tells us how strongly God condemns this sin of lying. Or Psalm fifty-two and verses two through five. Let's start in verse one. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness, Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and with thee out of the land of the living. Again, strong condemnation that we can see in scripture of this act of lying. And go to the New Testament as well. This is not just an Old Testament matter, but in John chapter 8 and verse 44 we read, Year of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he that is Satan speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. Satan is the father of lies. He inspires lies that sometimes, rather than blaming Satan for our lies, we just need to look to our own sin nature as to why we have lied, but clearly, lying is not just some innocent little sin. Lying is much, much more serious than that. Well, let's look then, what is lying? I'm going to say lying is intentional deception. And I remember an incident back when I lived in Tulsa of a man who was running for office. He was a good man in many ways. He was strongly pro-life, but he wanted to be on the city council. And anyway, he was accused as though this were something wrong of having participated in a pro-life meeting on a certain date. And anyway, this reporter asked him outright, did you participate in this demonstration? And he answered, I did not participate in a pro-life demonstration on April 12th, 19, whatever it was. However, the problem was the reporter got the date wrong. He had participated in the demonstration, only it was on the 13th, not the 12th. Was he lying? Well, I remember talking with some of my Republican friends there, a couple said, no, that wasn't a lie. But I say it was. A lie is not just a statement that is technically false. A lie is an intentional deception. You can intentionally deceive while telling people something that is factually absolutely correct. I think I've used this example with you before here, but I'll use it again. Some years ago, here in Montgomery, Alabama, well, it looks like our time is kind of running out, so I'm gonna save this for the next time, but I will just say that lying can be more than a statement that is technically false. It can be nonverbal, It can be saying something without checking it out thoroughly. It can be breaking a promise. Lying is any intentional deception. And seeing more of how that applies We'll see them just a little bit after the break.
1: Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel Eidsmo, you were about to share with us an example of how someone could make a factual statement, but it could still end up being a lie. I'm anxious to hear that.
0: Well, I had an incident here in Montgomery some years ago where I was stabbed in the chest by a masked man right in Montgomery, broad daylight. He had a female accomplice, and he demanded money from me. And I gave it to him. Now, what I've just told you is absolutely true. But I decided not to press charges. The reason I didn't press charges is that he was a surgeon. And he was removing a basal cell from my chest. That's not cancer. It's something that could become cancer if it is not removed. But anyway, it's a very simple procedure. But what I just said was true. He stabbed me with a knife, that is a surgical scalpel. It was in broad daylight, regular business hours. He was wearing a mask, a surgical mask. He had a female accomplice, his nurse, and he demanded money by billing me and through my insurance company, I paid it. Everything I said was true. But it gave you a very, very distorted impression of what actually happened. And you can lie giving a distorted impression without necessarily saying anything that was factually false. Lying to be nonverbal, rolling your eyes at something or nodding at something or winking or something like that to convey an impression that something is false or true when, in fact, the opposite is the case. Lateness can be a form of lying. If you say, I'm going to be there at nine, and you don't really intend to be there at nine at all, you intend to be later. Or you say, I'll have this done by tomorrow, but have no intention of doing that, that is a form of lying. If you say, I'll be there at nine, but then you aren't. If you intended to be there at that time, but you weren't, debatable whether that's lying, but if you get in the habit of of lateness, Yes, that's a form of deceiving people, when you know you're not going to keep that promise. Procrastination, putting something off, can be a form of lying. Breaking a promise to get something done can be a form of lying. and You would be amazed at how many people today, even among Christian people today, think that it's okay to break a promise so long as it's not made in writing. Now, that's something that I am pretty emphatic about and that I refuse to do. And I know people that are speakers in conservative and Christian circles that if they say that they'll speak for a certain event at a certain time, and then they're invited to another event that is bigger or more desirable or pays more or something like that, they'll cancel the first event and take the second instead. I refuse to do that. That's wrong. If I commit myself to something, I will do it. Saying things without checking them out is also wrong. That's also a form of of lie. Now there's a statement that is attributed to Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry supposedly said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded Not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. problem is, Patrick Henry, from what we can tell, never actually said that. That would be similar to many of the sentiments Patrick Henry would hold, but no one can track that down. And to use that quote without having checked it out thoroughly is a form of lying. Yes, maybe unintentional, but you are presenting yourself as an authority on something. You are representing that you've done your homework on something, when in fact you have not. That's a form of dishonesty. And as we're trying to establish the Christian heritage of this nation, we don't need to do that. The evidence that our founding fathers were Christians is overwhelming, including Patrick Henry. We don't need spurious quotes. Now, I'm not even going to say for sure that Patrick Henry didn't say that. It's possible that he did somewhere. We just can't find a record of it. But we should limit ourselves to quotations from the founding fathers that we can document. And I might just add, too, that conservative Christians are far from being the only ones who, who do this. The other side uses false quotations as well. but. There are many forms of lying, in other words, but why is lying wrong? Well, the first point I would make is it's wrong because we are commanded not to do it, and that's enough. But besides that, civilization is based upon the assumption that most people tell the truth most of the time. The people commonly tell the truth. They have no motive to do the opposite and really when you think about it civil discourse becomes impossible without that presumption why bother asking somebody what time it is if they're just as likely to lie or tell the truth why ask directions as to how to get somewhere if people are more likely to lie than tell the truth you can't really have meaningful communication without the presumption that most of the time people tell the truth. One of the condemnations that God, through Hosea, brings against Israel is that there is no truth in Israel. And here in this country, not only do we have lying as being common, but we have people today that don't believe there is any such thing as objective truth. And that being the case, it's no wonder that respect for the truth disappears. Also, lying is deceptive. People rely upon what you say. If somebody asks me directions to get to Birmingham from here, for example, and I tell them to get on Interstate 65 and go south. That's not going to take them to Birmingham. That's going to take them to Mobile. And people who rely on false statements are very much harmed by relying on it. Somebody says they're going to mow your lawn tomorrow morning, and they don't do it. Well, then you're put out. You may have to find somebody else. But in other words, you really harm other people by lying. A third thing is that it becomes habit for People tell one lie in order to cover up another, and from that point on, lying or telling the truth seems to consist in Telling the same lie consistently. Lying hurts your credibility. Others will not believe you, even when you are telling the truth. The story of the boy who called wolf is an example of that. In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, Paul quotes Epimedes of Gnosis from the 7th century BC, as saying that all Cretans are liars. Well, if a Cretan tells you that all Cretans are liars, should you believe it? That's a question that we can wrestle with sometimes, although it's something for fun, but I'm not so much concerned about the difficult cases. I'm more concerned about the easy ones, where lying is something that we know it's wrong. What about some of the exceptions, though? Well, one exception might be in time of war, and... Churchill once said that in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. In other words, to keep the enemy from knowing the truth about our plans, we use deception. For example, in war one time, the British planted some false orders on the body of a dead officer, knowing that the Germans would find that body, find the orders, And from those false orders assumed that the British were going to engage in a certain plan of action, when in fact the British intended to do the opposite. Is that an exception where lying is justified? Is lying justified in war? Well, perhaps in some circumstances. We can look into martial arts, and in martial arts, a lot of martial arts is going to be based on deception. You make a certain move to to suggest to your opponent you're going to do one thing, and then you do the opposite instead. Or in football, you take a pass and things like that. That's a form of deception, but it's part of the rules of the game, and we can understand that that's a different ethic that applies there. Or another way of looking at lies, some suggest that it is a lie, if a lie is wrong, that is, if you are making a false statement to somebody who is entitled to the truth and sometimes there may be people who aren't entitled to the truth so let's take a look at some of those exceptions after the break
1: final segment of Constitution Classroom today here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, let's let's bring home this discussion on not bearing false witness.
0: Sometimes in Christian ethics classes we talk about Corrie ten Boom, a Christian woman who as a young girl. She and her family would take in Jews into in the Netherlands to protect them from the Nazis. And they would hide the Jews if the Nazis were in the area. They'd have them go down through a trap door, which was under the kitchen table, down into the basement. Well, one time, Corrie ten Boom was home alone. And she got the idea there were Nazis in the area. She had the Jews in the house go down into the basement. And anyway, they had the trap door under the kitchen table. There was a carpet under the table there. Nazis came in. Asked, do you have any Jews here? Corey ten Boom, she knew that if she told the truth, they'd be found and executed. If she simply said no, they'd probably do a search. And so she played crazy. She acted like she was retarded or crazy, and she kind of pointed under the, down to below the table and said, they're under the table and the Nazis assumed that she was a nut, and so they left. Well, technically, yes, they were under the table. They were down in the basement, which is accessed by that trap door under the table. But she conveyed a false impression. In ethics classes, it's sometimes asked, did she lie? Some would say, no, technically, that wasn't a lie. I'll say it was an intentional deception. But it could be justified on two grounds. One ground would be that it is a lesser evil than the ground of the lie, the sin of telling the truth and exposing them to certain death. Exposing them to death would be a greater sin, and sometimes we are forced to choose between lesser evils. Or it could be, you could say that it was justified because those Nazis were not entitled to the truth. You know, I have to admit to you, Brian. I've been engaged in deception for many years. <laughs> and I'm gonna give you a dirty secret here about my deception. There is a home security company that came out to our house to try to sell us on their home security system. And we decided not to buy at that time. But when we left, they set up a they put a sign in front of our house. It just said, this house protected by and their company. (laughs) We've left that sign there. I hope no potential burglars are listening right now. But do I owe an apology to all the burglars that I have deceived by this? I don't think so. They're not entitled to the truth. We thought about putting in our neighborhood there we're rural area eight houses in the neighborhood with a gravel road about five acres for each house and so on but anyway we thought about putting a sign on the front in the entrance to the gate there beside private property and so on that says this house protected by 24-hour surveillance even if it wasn't would that be a lie well one way i thought we could possibly say it was well, put a camera there for 24 hours and just not tell people that the 24 hours is attended. But at any rate, point is burglars and trespassers are not entitled to the truth, so there's nothing wrong with that. But we make a promise that we will tell in court the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet we see examples in Scripture of people that tell something less than the whole truth. For example, when Abraham and his wife Sarah are in Egypt, and Abraham's concerned because she's very beautiful, that Pharaoh will have him killed and will take Pharaoh or take Sarah as his wife, he says, "Don't tell him I'm your husband. Tell him I tell him you're my, you're my sister." Which was true. She was his half-sister, but also his wife. And so she did so and the pharaoh was very upset with Aedlin that he had deceived in this way, was that deception to not tell the whole truth? Well, we can argue about that. He did the same thing later with Abimelech, saying that Sarah was his sister and not adding that she's also his wife. So sometimes there are half-truths. And I would argue that a half-truth is a lie, but maybe under some circumstances it is justified. To say that we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is not necessarily meaning that we have to answer every question. If your wife wants a certain dress and asks you if you like it, but the fact is you don't, what do you say? Well, after 51 years of marriage, I'm not sure yet that I still have an answer to that question. (laughs) But you don't have to volunteer an opinion about everything. And you don't have to make insincere compliments. Sometimes you just just look for good things that you can say about people. And sometimes we need to recognize that words don't always mean what they literally say. You ask somebody, how are you? And they say, I'm fine. That doesn't necessarily mean they're fine. What they really mean to say by that is, I can handle my problems, and I don't care to discuss them right now. But these are borderline situations, and it's hard to address those. But what I'm concerned about are the majority of cases of lying that are not borderline situations. And there, what we need to do is get in the habit of telling the truth to where the possibility of lying doesn't even preset itself to us as an option. The scriptures again are clear on this. Proverbs 11.1, 1, the Lord hates cheating, but he delights in honesty. Proverbs 12.19, truth stands the test of time. Lies are soon exposed. Psalm 15, verse 4, and this is a very important He that sweareth to his own hurt, yet doeth it. That is, you make a promise to somebody, turns out there's a better deal elsewhere. You wish you hadn't made that promise, but you Keep your promise even when it would not be advantageous to do so. Romans 3 4 tells us, though everyone else in the world is a liar, God is true. So scripture is very clear. By the way, the American courts have talked about lying as well. There's an interesting case, the case of Commonwealth versus Brown out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in 1957, in which the court says a dying declaration, that is, a declaration of somebody who is dying, is to be accepted, is probably true because people are not likely to die when they're ready to beat their maker. As the court said, when a person is faced with death when he knows is impending and is about to see his maker face to face, is he not more likely to tell the truth then is a witness in a court who knows that if he lies, he will have a lo- locus and a time an opportunity to re- repent, confess, and be absolved of his sin. But there was a dissent by Justice Musmano, who said, an expiring murderer could have as much motive to f- falsify as he had to kill. If the Sixth Commandment did not deter him from slaughtering his fellow man, the Ninth Amendment, or commandment rather, would present no barrier to his bearing false witness. There are persons who defy goodness and honor, this is a Supreme Court justice saying this, and who accept the cut rates of Mr. Satan at his sulfuric supermarket, Mm. rather than pay the just price which decency and justice demand, and because of this, evil still walks on the earth. The Court of Appeals of California for the 3rd Appellate District once wrote, Counsels for the appellant cite several verses of the Bible, all of which perhaps are fitting when the circumstances correspond. But in this case, we think the ninth commandment, given effect to the trial, the trial court is conclusive. In another case, United States versus Ianello, federal supplement case, federal district court in 1990, quoting Exodus 20:16, says, "When our judicial system." was established, and the requirement of an oath or affirmation on the part of a witness was borrowed from the British common law, the swearing of an oath meant something. Namely, that the court court could be fairly sure that a witness would tell the truth. In the time of our founding fathers, witnesses believed that they would be subject to severe and perhaps immediate divine retribution if they lied under oath on the witness stand based on the Ninth Commandment's prescription handed down by God to Moses, that thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And one other case that I'll cite in closing here, Davis versus Queen City Furniture, the Louisiana Supreme Court. Whether in all these contradictions it is the plaintiff's witnesses who have violated the Ninth Commandment or if it be the defendant's witnesses, only the Supreme Judge can decide with absolute certainty. But we live in a world of deception, and in that world of deception, we should strive to be truthful. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said.